Well, I want to start by welcoming the folks uh, at Highland Park and from the O1 Services, and also, uh, I suppose I should give thanks to uh, truly one of the great 21st century theologians, Jim Carrey, for his uh, <laughs> slightly, slightly over-the-top uh, portrayal of being angry at God. I don't know whether that has happened to you uh, ever or recently. It happened relatively recently uh, to me. It's uh, six months ago this weekend that I had the stroke. It was about uh, two, maybe three months ago that in the middle of the night I ended up back in the hospital for respiratory issues. Part of the deficit of the stroke is that parts of my throat are paralyzed. And so swallowing was initially very hard. My voice remains a little bit compromised by this. And uh, I have a very, very anemic cough. And uh, when I got a cold, I just couldn't quite clear my throat. And I coughed and I coughed and I coughed and I coughed and I coughed. And eventually, I just sort of coughed my throat into a really bad spot. And I was waking up during the night uh, and just aware that my condition was sort of declining and that it was getting harder and harder to try and get a breath. And at about 3 o'clock in the morning, it was significantly bad that I thought, you know, if, if, if this decline continues, uh, I'm in trouble pretty quick. And it seems like I ought to go to the hospital now I can still get a breath before waiting until I can't. And so I asked Cherry to take me, and it was about 3 in the morning. When you walk into an emergency room at 3 in the morning going, I can't breathe, you get a fairly quick attention. And so they put me in a wheelchair, and a nurse put a little pulse ox meter on me, and there was a handful of people sort of escorting me back into this room. And then the nurse said... Uh, pulse ox reads 100%. In other words, I was breathing fine. And you could just see, like, the alarm went off. I mean, it was, it was no longer a, 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 a difficult situation. And most everybody just walked back out of the room. And the nurse left then, and it was about that point that Sherry showed up, and she said, where is everybody? She had parked my car, and she goes, where is everybody? And I said, well, my pulse ox is 100%. Apparently I'm not, and I'm still trying to get a breath. And uh, after 10 minutes or so, a doctor came in, and he gave me an exam, and he said, well, Mr. Woodruff, look, um, when people present these kind of symptoms, I sort of go down a checklist, and your heart's fine, and your lungs are fine, and you're not having an asthma attack, and in fact, you're breathing just fine. He said, so I gave you uh, a minute ago through an IV, because I gave you some Ativan, and I think you're going to be just fine. And he then walks out of the room. So Ativan means that what they're treating me for is a panic attack. And, and uh, I, that was so frustrating. And I said to Sherry, I said, we will not say anything about this to anybody. <laughs> I do not want more people aware of my medical trials and they'll clamp down on me and I won't be able to do anything. I said, don't say anything to anybody. And she looks over and tears are running down my, my cheeks and she goes, Mike, it's okay to be scared when you can't breathe. And I said, I'm not scared, I'm furious. 
I go, this, and, and, and it was in ways that the stroke did not strike me as being unfair. This felt unfair. Like, I'm getting pushed down again. I can't believe that that's what's happening. Well, by the time everything sort of calmed down, it was about 7 in the morning, and so we left there, and we went to my otolaryngologist, who's the throat specialist, and he looked and he says, oh, well, Mike, you, you, you've got, I got to get you on steroids, I got to get you on antibiotics, your throat is a mess. And I felt a little bit vindicated for uh, what was going on, but no less frustrated that this had happened to me. So we're going to think about that, as has already been set up. We're, we're working our way through the stages that follow a major loss. So, so far, shock, sorrow, and struggle, or the emotions would be numbness, sadness, and now it would be anger. And this anger, in various ways, is expressed at God. And so, in order to set this up in this little, uh, the, the tension that can exist between us as we go back and forth with God, I want to I direct you to Genesis chapter 32 to the wrestling match that takes place between God and Jacob, the conniving, wicked, manipulative, lying uh, son of Isaac. Uh, Jacob's story begins in Genesis chapter 25, and really it goes throughout the rest of the book, about another 25 chapters. He's a major, major figure, which means that if the Old Testament was a law firm, uh, he would be a senior partner. As a matter of fact, his name would be on the door. And, and we hear that in the New Testament. People will talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's a patriarch. And that's sort of where really where the story begins. So Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of universal history. It's, it's cosmic issues. And we have creation and the fall and the promise that God makes there in Genesis 3, that he's going to send someone to fix things. He's going to send someone to defeat evil. The seed of woman will eventually come and will help uh, us get right again. And so then the story itself begins with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And what we read when we read the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis 12 all the way through to the end, we keep reading to see when is God going to keep the promise? Right? When is God going to send the Redeemer? When is this finally going to work itself out? Right? So initially the call is to Abraham and God enters into a, a little contract of sorts with Abraham. We call it a covenant. And the deal is, God says, if you will follow me, leave your father's land, I will give you land, descendants, and I will bless the world through your lineage. Right? So the belief at that point has got to be for Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child that will be the promised one. Right? And that's not the way, of course, that it works out. Uh, Abraham and Sarah can have kids in some sort of miraculous way, very late in life. Uh, Sarah conceives and gives birth to a son who they name Laughter. Uh, that's what Hebrew, Hebrew uh, translation of uh, Isaac means. Because when she was told she was going to have a baby, she laughed. It was uh, ridiculous. So there's some uh, drama around the birth of Isaac and all that 
and then there's some drama with Isaac, but eventually Isaac will uh, marry a woman named Rebecca. And Isaac and Rebecca will have two sons. Uh, the first one is Esau. They're twins, but the oldest one is Esau. And the name Esau means uh, hairy. He's, he's the big, brawny, burly, he's the man's man. Uh, really, Esau the, is the first dumb jock uh, to enter the story. And he's his father's favorite. And then the second son is Jacob. And Jacob's name means conniver, deceiver, manipulator, uh, I cheat. I mean, it's, it's, so names back then, remember, meant something. Right? They were sort of your brand. They said something about you in ways that names today do not. And uh, I'm glad we've moved away from that, right? Especially since, in Jacob's case, and in some others, uh, names basically are just your, your cardinal sin, right? I mean, you could say, hi, I'm a trickster, manipulator, and conniver. Oh, well, I'm greed and pride. Uh, this is uh, sloth and lust and envy here. Uh, you know, that, yeah, I, I'm glad we're past that. But uh, Jacob uh, is, is the second son, and, and Jacob and Esau and the whole family are massively dysfunctional. Jacob and Esau start to fight in the womb. They're fighting throughout life. Then Jacob will uh, trick his brother. Remember, Esau's the dumb jock. He tricks his brother out of his birthright. This is sort of like rewriting the will. And now he gets the major share. And then later on, Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, will dupe Isaac and Esau into sort of whatever was left in the will. They've sort of gone after that as well. They get the blessing and they get the, the lion's share of things. So um, at that point, at that point, Jacob has to flee town. When Esau finds out what his you know, younger brother has done, uh, he's mad, and so Jacob realizes that he needs to flee. And uh, so he heads out, and uh, initially, again, in Genesis 28, on his way out of town, there's the whole Jacob's ladder scene, where he has a dream and he sees a ladder going up and down between heaven and angels crawling back and forth. And then Genesis 29 through 32 tells us about Jacob's time uh, in this land, and this is where they would need to get their own reality show because it just gets even more bizarre and dysfunctional. Uh, he ends up making a, a deal with a man named Laban that he will work six years or seven years. He'll work for a long time in order to marry this man's daughter, Rachel. But in the end, Laban tricks and dupes uh, Jacob into marrying and sleeping with the other sister, Leah, and then he marries Rachel and works for Laban, and they don't get along. And eventually, he hears from God that he is to flee, or excuse me, that he's to leave and he's to go home. So at this point, 20 years later, he's now a wealthy man. He has a number of servants, he has two wives, he has 11 kids, lots of cattle, lots of sheep, lots of goats. So he makes a, a break for it. Uh, tries to leave uh, without Laban knowing. He makes a break for it. And then they get word as they're traveling to go back home, he gets word that Esau has heard about it and is coming to meet him with, by the way, 400 armed men. This doesn't sound like a happy family reunion. Clearly, 
uh, Jacob thinks that Esau is going to try and kill him. So he begins to send ahead his family with presents for Esau. So wave after wave after wave, he's sending family members with cattle and other things to meet Esau as Esau comes to meet Jacob, to try and sort of, you know, calm down his temper. And uh, then, uh, in the end here, it's just Jacob is left alone, and this is where he is going to have a little wrestling match with God. Um, we, we, you know, bigger than, obviously, uh, mixed martial art, cage fights, and uh, WWF stuff, God and man are going to wrestle here. And it takes place in Genesis chapter 32. So I'm going to read beginning with verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Okay, now there's a pun that goes on here in Hebrew that just doesn't translate very easily into English. Um, Jacob is Yabok in Hebrew. Um, wrestle is Yabek, and the, uh, the Jabok River would be Yabok. So what you have here is that um, you would say that Yabok Yabeked at the Yabok. Uh, so God wrestled man um, at, this, uh, at this river. Now, who exactly is it that uh, Jacob is wrestling? Right? Uh, on the one hand, the idea of wrestling with God sure sounds like a metaphor. Right? We wrestle with God in prayer. And there are some who take it this way. Um, but Jacob will leave here walking with a limp. And there are some other clues in the Hebrew text that, that suggest, no, this is not a metaphor. This is an actual event. And so we then are left by saying, well, maybe it is an angel. Maybe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, some sort of divine being is going to wrestle with Jacob. Verse 25. When the man saw, and the man refers to this divine angel, God, man, whoever. When, um, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, being Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So, initially, right, Jacob is jumped, and this is also clearer in the Hebrew. Jacob is sort of tackled from behind by this man, and they enter into a wrestling match. So, initially, Jacob is trying to get away, right? But at some point, he clues in that... Uh, this is a divine being, right? And this wouldn't be all that out of uh, character for Jacob. I mean, he obviously knows Abraham, his father, had these kind of visitors, as did uh, his Abraham's other wife, Hagar, met with an angel in the desert. So at some point, he sort of clues in and says, okay, I know what's going on here. And he doesn't want to let go, right? So he's holding on. And uh, at that point, um, when, when, the, when the angel, when the man saw he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his leg goes out of joint. Now, we get a clue here uh, about what's really going on. 
I'm, I'm an expert on wrestling because I wrestled one season in seventh grade, although I didn't actually ever wrestle. I spent the entire year trying to lose weight so that I could get down to the weight that I wanted to wrestle at. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't have a lot to show for wrestling. And, and, but what I learned in that one year is that basically they teach you a bunch of ways that you can try and bend somebody in ways that they don't bend so that they will go the direction you want them to go, which is eventually to flip over on their back so you can be done with this whole thing. So you learn all these moves, right? That's what you're, you're learning when you wrestle. No one ever taught me the touch the hip uh, move and then you win. Um, now in Hebrew, it, the word that's used here is that it's the lightest tap. So this being taps Jacob's hip and his hip goes out of joint. Well, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, we got a lot of muscles in our leg holding our leg uh, to our body. So obviously, this wrestling match is sort of like dad wrestling with the three-year-old, right? He's acting like, oh, I can't get up. Oh, you're so strong. Oh, you know, you're winning. And then as soon as it's bedtime, dad stands up, picks up the kid, and puts him to bed, right? He was never compromised. He could have gotten away at any point. He doesn't get away because, not because he likes to wrestle, right? He doesn't get away because struggling is the right thing for Jacob to be doing. Jacob needs to wrestle with God. And so um, God would rather have Jacob and God would rather have you and me wrestle, engage with him than flee or than just not pay any attention. So this engagement actually uh, is for Jacob's benefit. And so verse 26, it says, Then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. This is another clue that there's some sort of divine being. So daybreak, uh, you can't see the face of God and live. Right? And so the, the sort of the threat from this man is, Hey, the sun's about to come up. Right? you got to get it. you got to let me go or you're going to die. That's, that's the statement that's being made here. Um, Jacob, so the man said, let me go for its daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay. So the man asked him, what is your name? Okay. So let's just pause and acknowledge that when God is asking a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He knows the answer. He's trying to get us to look at the answer. What is your name? Right? What is your brand? What is your character? Who are you? And Jacob would be forced to essentially to say, I am the liar, the manipulator, the selfish, greedy jerk. That's who I am. That's what they call me. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome this is one of the many places in Scripture where when God does a work in somebody's life, he changes their name. Saul to Paul, Simon to Peter, Jacob now to Israel. Um, Israel means, uh, has two meanings in Hebrew. The one is struggles with God or God fights. And it's a little unclear whether or not God is fighting for you or with you. Um, 
either would actually sort of be uh, true when it comes to the nation of Israel for the last 4,000 years. The second name, uh, the second meaning of Israel is Prince of God. So God says, um, you're now a prince. You used to be a manipulating jerk, but now you're going to be a prince. You used to be a, a deceiver, but now you are going to be uh, a leader. Jacob's struggle with God is changing his identity. Right? Jacob has been fleeing from God his entire life, as have some of you. And God finally says, enough, let's, uh, let's go to the mat, let's have it out, and, uh, and they struggle, and Jacob prevails, right? He, he does what he doesn't want to do, and then he is blessed because of it, and his name uh, is changed. And it says, God blessed him there, so Jacob called the place Peniel, uh, which means the, the face of God. It's, be, it's because I saw God's face face to face, and yet my life was spared, that he calls that uh, Peniel. Now, four things I want to just briefly tease out of this passage for us. Number one, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to struggle. As a matter of fact, we need to struggle. So far, right, I said, you're going to go into shock. If there's major loss, you will go into shock. And then you will move to sorrow. And you will move to struggle. Next week, we're going to look at surrender. Here's the, here's the deal. You don't have to go to surrender. You can spend the rest of your life in struggle. You can, you can be stopped here. And some of you may be stopped here. When we were first married, moved back uh, to Chicago, I was a student at Trinity, and we lived in a, in a home in, in Deerfield, in the second story of this widow's home. And part of the deal was that in exchange for a lower rent, I would do various sort of chores, yard work. And uh, most of the time that I was out there doing this, this woman would sort of hover over me, talking, and usually it was to point out how, how, how much better her husband would be doing this than I was doing it. And I felt sorry for her uh, because it was obvious that she was grieving the loss of her husband. And, and I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to stand up for myself in that context. Uh, but she was relentless. And then one day Sherry says, well, when do you think her husband died? And I said, I don't know couple weeks before we got here? And she said, no, 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. She's stuck. Right? She's, she's still struggling, but she hasn't sort of pushed through this. She hasn't faced it. She hasn't expressed her anger and frustration to God at what has happened and moved through this. It's okay to struggle. Point number two, our struggles are often ultimately with God. We may not see this, right? If you were to ask Jacob who he was struggling with his whole life, he probably would have said Esau. He might have said his dad. He might have said Laban. Who knows who he would have said. But ultimately, he has been struggling with God. And, uh, 
And, and God has to eventually just sort of bring that out so that he, see, he sees it clearly. Now, it's worth noting, you could say Jacob was struggling with himself. Right? And Paul gives words to that in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about how the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You know, poor me, wicked man that I am. I can't get this right. Right? A lot of our struggles are with ourselves. Leadership of others is hard. Leadership of ourselves is the hardest. So there's some of that going on. But ultimately, Jacob's struggle is with God. Number three, these struggles are often the path forward. Our struggles are often the path forward. We just don't grow much when we're comfortable. Right? Comfort, ease, serenity, that's, that's not when we're actually taking ground and being transformed. It's generally through the struggles and the trials. I want you to see... Uh, a video here. It's a brief video, but I want you to see this. Uh, Jeff Schlockenhoffen, who's the chairman of our deacon board, um, is going through a trial. I just want you to see how he talks about this. Hi, my name is Jeff Schlockenhoffen. Um, I'm married and have four kids. We've been going to Christ Church for almost 14 years. Three years ago, um, I got a phone call that uh, nobody wants to get. Um, I was, I was uh, just about to start a new job. I was here alone and the phone rang 7 o'clock at night and I had had a CAT scan earlier in the day and the doctor cut to the chase real quick. He said, um, listen, the, the scan shows that you have a mass on your pancreas. We don't know if it's cancer, but nothing on a pancreas is good. I was not expecting that. I had, I had had pain since June and, and we had done a number of different tests colonoscopy and a few other things and really hadn't figured out anything. I thought I, I knew something was wrong, but I had no uh, idea that it would be what it was. You know, we were shocked to find out that I had stage four pancreatic cancer. The doctors were shocked. I was 47. I had none of the risk factors for pancreatic cancer. But what I find out is I do have all the risk factors for some kind of adversity. It's, it's part of life. I mean, one of the things in, in this whole process is, is realizing that there's a lot of people who have a hard time with it. Uh, one of the first choices we have that I had is, do I, do I blame God and turn away, or do I somehow find a way to thank God in this process and turn towards Him? And I, I think that one path leads to peace, and one path leads to bitterness. How we respond is, is a, well, it's our choice. It's hard. I do know, as one of my sons has said, either God is not in control or worse, he is. Uh, I would say my two oldest right now are, are kind of giving God the stiff arm. Uh, my two youngest are, are um, still very invested in trying to learn about God. Uh, it's a fatal disease. Um, and most people do die within the first six to nine months. I'm really not doing anything special. I'm trying to eat right, I'm trying to sleep right, I'm trying to pray. So there's things I can do there's things the doctors can do, but no matter what we ask the doctors, they shake their head and say, I'm sorry. So there's a gap, and uh, I would just say God's there. I, I, it's God's grace and mercy that I'm alive. That's not, it's really not that I'm doing this. 
that's uh, put me in the spot. You know, one of the things in this journey that has changed a little bit is how I view God. And instead of thinking of God maybe as our God or Emmanuel God with us, I think of God more as my God. Personal, right here with me in this, in this crisis, in this trial. And that is, that is really powerful. And I pray to be part of God's plan, whatever that is. I mean, clearly, I'm, like, I, I'm where I am, but God can use this in a good way. And that's what I hope will happen, for, especially for those I love. Great trials that we face are often a possible catalyst for growth in our life. Now, it's not a foregone conclusion. I've said this over and over. We don't have to get better, right? Not everybody that grows old grows wise. Sometimes you just grow old. But uh, struggles and trials can be the very thing that uh, once we face them and we work through them, we find ourselves in a very different spot. Which leads to the last point. Take your pain, your fear, your anger, your frustration. Take that directly to God. Wrestle with God in prayer. Engage God. Plead your case. Ask for a blessing. Hold on. Refuse to let go. Remind Him of His goodness. This is the language we get in the Psalms, right? People saying, God, you must be asleep. I can't believe you're letting this happen. I can't believe you're letting these bad people get away with it. I can't believe I'm all alone here and you're not doing your job. That's the language we get in the Psalms. And then they begin to plead their case. God, you're a loving God. I know you're a loving God. Why isn't it happening now? Why don't I see it? And, and that whole process of taking it directly to God is part of the whole process of growing. Don't complain about God. That doesn't work. Right? The Jews complained about God. It got them a long time in the desert. Moses complained to God, and his prayers were answered. Right? Don't be scared to take your frustrations, your confusion, your anger, your heartache directly to God. That's what you need to do with it in order to move through it and get to the next phase, which is surrender. Surrender is not waving a white flag. We'll look at this next week. So you need to come back because surrender is the pathway ultimately to peace. Perhaps you're running from God. It's time to stop, engage, face the pain, face the fear, bring all of this to God, wrestle with him in prayer. It is the pathway ahead. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I know that there are many here uh, who are frustrated, confused, hurt, not unlike the Jim Carrey character who was uh, just mad at you, not unlike where I was a couple months ago, frustrated at what was going on, feeling like this was very unfair. Uh, I pray that, uh, Lord God, they would find um, in you a path forward as Jacob did. And uh, that you would, you would use this darkness uh, to move forward in ways that, that bring transformation and lead ultimately to surrender and to peace. We pray this in Christ's name.